Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. With the recently minted retail extravaganzas of Black Friday and Cyber Monday just gone, and with Christmas coming up, more and more of us turn to Amazon. But beyond the vans on our streets and the boxes on our doorsteps, what do we really know about the impact of this global corporate behemoth, sometimes styled as the everything store? Joining me to discuss the Amazonification of everything is consumer psychologist at creative agency Decide, Dr. Gareth Harvey. Gareth, welcome to The Bunker. Nice to be with you. So, Gareth, we now think of Amazon as this sort of ubiquitous everything store, but where did its journey begin? So, Amazon feels like it's been around basically forever, but it was first launched in the States back in uh, 94. And probably the best way to think about it is it was almost like a distribution company. So, it was a company that specialized in getting things from A to B, in this case, books. So it was a case of rather than having to have a wholesaler and a retailer and you ordering the books from a store, you could just order the books straight from the wholesaler and they'd deliver the books right to you. So they specialised in logistics and that was something they just excelled in. It wasn't until about 1998 it kind of came over to the UK and it made its first profit or turned its first profit in about 2001. So it took them about, what, seven years before they could start making a profit, but They move from just being primarily books and, well, books and CDs, and slowly they've just expanded into more and more sectors. Initially, it was just selling products. It's then started going into, as we now know, the streaming. But the big area that people often forget is its online web services. So Amazon, they've now got um, the biggest market share for cloud infrastructure. So they're ahead of both Google Cloud and Microsoft. They go in terms of making their own hardware. So tend to forget about things like the Kindle Fire. But again, it was kind of groundbreaking when they first launched that. And likewise, they've gone into now um, smart speakers. Right. So it really is sort of, I was born in 1990. Within my lifetime, this has gone from essentially a book delivery company to the everything that we see around us now and some things that we don't even see, like the infrastructure of the internet. Yeah. So it's like you say, we think about it as just the shop to, if, if you want something, Amazon stock it. But literally, the cloud computing, which most websites are built on, or a lot of them are, Amazon provide that today. Now, to stick with the retail side for a second, the death of the high street is something that people have now been talking about for many years. And is this something that sort of Amazon started or did they sort of capitalize on it and catch a wave? It's probably more a case of being at the right place at the right time. So sort of 94, when Amazon were launching the States, you were really starting to see the point of more and more out-of-town shopping centres opening up. Likewise, in the UK around 98, you saw more of these shopping centres, so people weren't going to be on the high street so much. So it's a case of that was really going on. But the fact that you were starting to get to the point where you didn't need to go into town to buy, whether it was your CDs, your books, clothing, or even, Amazon just happened to be at the right time, at the right place, and it's probably sped up that process. So I think being generous, you might want to say Amazon were a catalyst for the process, but they didn't start it. And for smaller businesses now, it feels like so many people sort of have to mediate what they do through Amazon because it's also become a marketplace, right? Yeah, it's a simple case of because Amazon sell everything, if you're not sure what you're going to buy or where you're going to go for it, so many people will just go to Amazon as their first place. Amazon has just such an amazing top of mind. So if you think you want to buy a CD, well, I'm not sure who buys a CD, but let's say you're going to download an audiobook, people go via Amazon. If you're going to buy some new computer tech, people will just start looking there. If you don't know where to go, people go there to start with. So if you're a small business, you want people to buy your product, you're kind of forced to go through Amazon. 
And that means you're going to have to accept their terms and conditions. In terms of them being the sort of first port of call for so many people, you know, and stocking everything, it seems like how does Amazon sort of influence what we purchase? You know, like we we think that we're in control of what it is that we want and everything. But what, what does Amazon sort of do behind the scenes and stuff in order to influence our purchasing behaviors? In some ways, you can think of Amazon a little bit like Google. So if you're trying to find something on the Internet, most people start off with Google. They type things into the search engine, and what comes up on the first one, possibly two, if you're really lucky, three pages, that's what you're going to see. It's the same with Amazon. If you type in something into Amazon, the things on the first one, two, or potentially three pages, they're the things that you're going to be looking at. That's most likely to be what you're going to end up buying. So the fact Amazon controls through this algorithm, they influence what you see, and what you see is what you buy. And because that's so powerful, sort of where you get put in the search rankings and everything, like you, you mentioned earlier, that the sort of terms and conditions that small business owners, when they're trying to deal with the marketplace or something, have to put up with, like, what, what are these conditions like? So the hardest one for them to do is to understand where the algorithm is. Because although Amazon uh, make it quite public what certain aspects of the algorithm features, so for example, relevant keywords, what a seller's authority is, how many reviews you have, you don't actually know the individual weighting. So it sort of becomes this game where you're trying to work out how do you play the algorithm. Now, if you're a large business, you can have the time, the money, you've got people who are probably going to be specialists at understanding this. If you're a small business, you're probably going to end up just sort of going onto the internet, trying to search and get hints, tips to try and work out what to do. You just don't have the expertise to play the algorithm like some large international suppliers do. And that really puts these small businesses at a disadvantage. So we talked there about the conditions for small businesses who are trying to use Amazon as a mediating platform. The other thing that people do think about are the conditions in the warehouses and the way that Amazon treats workers. It feels like that's a thing that has gotten more and more sort of social traction or social awareness at the same time as Amazon is still being used more and more. So to what extent does our sort of awareness of these conditions and the ethics surrounding them influence us? Because it seems like the sort of things that people say are one thing, but then the revealed sort of preferences are another. It's a really interesting one. So as a psychologist, I'm really interested in seeing what people say they do. But actually, when it comes to making business decisions, I'm only interested in actual behavior. Social consciousness awareness of, say we say, ethical issues, so climate change, sustainable things, are really on the up. Yet when we look at the sales data of products, or we say sustainable products, it doesn't always balance out. And a lot of this comes down to, should we say, self-report issues. If you ask people, do they care about the environment? They're going to say yes. Fantastic documentaries by the likes of David Attenborough, The Blue Planet and things, they've really raised awareness. But when it comes to making a decision about what products you're going to buy, are you really happy about spending whatever it is, 20%, 10% more for a sustainable product? So many people aren't. And what's really interesting about the internet is this effect is magnified. If you go into a supermarket, a physical bricks and mortar store, people notice what's in your trolley. They see what you're buying and you feel a little bit aware, shall we say. Potentially, if you're buying, shall we say, battery eggs, you might feel a little bit ashamed. But when it comes to buying things online, there's no way that no one there noticing you. There's no one there judging you. So you can buy whatever you want in a certain amount of privacy. So we don't have this element of conspicuous consumption. So people are far happier buying from Amazon, even though if you ask them in a questionnaire, do you object to it? Yeah, they're going to object 
but the behavior hasn't changed. That's fascinating then. So people's sort of buying habits and stuff are sort of markedly and noticeably different if they're on the internet versus if they're actually in a shop and having to sort of do this with another person. One of the biggest changes we've found is actually looking at people buying something as mundane as bleach. So when we've looked at what they buy, which bleach they buy in a supermarket, in a bricks and mortar store, about 70% of people buy the leading branded product. When we look at the same sort of segment of people, so controlling for social or economic factors, about 70% of people are now buying the store own brand version. Are thinking of what's going on, it's basically no one wants to look cheap. They don't like to be seen buying the, shall we say, the Tesco's, the Morrison's, the Asda own brand version. But when you're at home buying it online, nobody cares. Um, and that's, as I said, controlling for social economic factors. It's controlling for people who normally buy online, buy in store. All of those factors were statistically controlled for, and we still get the effect. That's fascinating because I, I certainly feel like I've never been around anyone's house and seen a like non-domestos bleach and thought you cheap bastard. Like that's a, and yet people seem to think this in themselves. We judge ourselves far more as we really don't care about someone else. So as consumers, we know how much we buy from Amazon, or maybe some people don't, you know, I know I have friends with Prime who seem to get everything from tea bags to TVs uh, sort of delivered to them. But what are Amazon selling of ours? So Amazon collects a massive amount of data, and we don't necessarily know what we're, they're selling, but we know how they're using it. So, for example, a lot of the technology such as being developed. So, for example, a lot of the AI when they're trying to work out sentiment analysis. So you scan in some text and it works out, is the person in a good mood, bad mood? Are they angry, frustrated? Or a lot of that, at any rate, is trained on Amazon reviews. So they collect the data about what you say, they've got their star ratings, and all that data is trained. That data is there, is publicly available somehow. So it's being looked at that. Likewise, if you think about things such as Amazon Echo, the Amazon Echo, if you speak to it, ask questions, they're collecting that data. It, as far as I'm aware, it's not traded, but Amazon have got that data and they can be using it to work at other things. They've also got a massive amount of data in terms of what you're buying. So every time you click on something on a website, on their website, they're going to be analyzing it. Which products did you look at? Which ones didn't you look at? How long did you spend on that? All of those things will feed into their algorithm, and they're going to be constantly using it to refine it and updating it. Now, it's easy to pick on, say, Amazon for this, but in some ways, that's no different in terms of the algorithm as Tesco's club card data. They're constantly creating more tailored personal recommendations. So Amazon maybe have a more sophisticated data collection system for the website, but it's the same sort of thing that the other retailers are at least trying to do. And so are, are other retailers basically all following in this path now? Like I think back to when, you know, when the first iPhone came out, lots of smartphones looked lots of different ways. And now every smartphone pretty much follows the design thing of the iPhone. And that's just what you consider a smartphone to look like. Is that what's happening to sort of all retailers and Amazon? Are they all converging on this model? They're all trying to get data to refine their product offering. So if you think about the Tesco Club Card, that was first launched in 1995. Yes, it was a way in some ways to try and get people loyal, but it was mainly a market research tool. Before that point, Tesco knew that, let's say, how many units of milk they sold in a week. But they didn't know if the people who were buying, say, full-fat milk were also the same people who were buying malt whiskey. No idea why there'd be a correlation, but let's go with it. So they were suddenly starting to think, see what items people were buying together to create tailored offers. 
They were then trying to work out how they could nudge you if you normally spent £20, how to encourage you to spend £25. So they had to do that the old-fashioned way. Amazon, with a website, they don't just know which products you've bought. They know everything they've viewed at. How long? How many reviews you've looked at? Did you look at only the one star, the five star reviews? So they're getting all of those sort of things. And they're just constantly trying to refine it. The challenge for retailers is actually getting the data, but having people who can get meaning from it. So it's a case of trying to work out what the hell do you do with all that data? Amazon have an immense team of data and analysts, so they can start looking at this. They can run thousands of A-B tests, so make different versions of the website and see where do they put one button? How do they change the way an item's phrased and see how that impacts sales? So they've just got more resources than most of the retailers, and that's what allows them to excel. So let's say you're looking for something on Amazon. You'll always want to go to the thing with lots of reviews, ideally good ones. Uh, and how much can you trust what's being put in front of you there? So Amazon reviews are kind of a really great feature. It allows you to work out whether something is popular or not. But what most people don't realize is the reviews, shall we say, are not all given an equal weighting. So if you see something and you might say that there are like five five-star reviews, four three-star reviews, and a couple of one-star reviews, that looks kind of great. And you see the average weighting, it might be, a, say, a four and a half star. So you end up buying it. But Amazon doesn't create, a, shall we say, an even weighting in terms of all the reviews. They give a greater weighting to some rather than others. So for example, if they know that you've bought it, they'll definitely give that a higher review. If you've given lots of reviews, they'll lower those reviews. So it's a case of, from a small business point of view, they might get really pissed off that actually, when they calculate the average review of a product, it should be a lot higher than it is. But because of something, for example, a review is older, Amazon decides to discount it or ignore it. And it just makes it so much harder for a business to try and compete against it when they think they've got great reviews, but Amazon decides they're not going to be showing it. And that's a real challenge for businesses to compete against the larger corporations. And does this ultimately then end in a situation where you go on Amazon and it's almost like there's an Ayershah store and there's a Gareth Harvey store and just things so so specifically targeted to all of us and the awareness that like, oh, is willing to spend a bit more on bleach than uh, Gareth is. So we, we might even put the price of bleach up a bit for him. We've started seeing that. Again, you probably notice if you were ever buying a hotel. So if you go onto a hotel and you look at the website, you come back the next day, the price is going to be different reset your cookies, there's a good chance you will get a different price. Likewise, if you've got a VPN, you can change which country you're in and the price changes. So that's been going on for, well, I don't know, five, 10 years. We have this personalized pricing. On a website, we don't, well, I don't haven't seen it so much with Amazon. I don't think they do that. But other companies are doing it. Personalized offerings, they've been there for a while, though, in terms of how which products you see, how they're described. Likewise, if you go on, you watch something on a smart TV and you use Amazon Prime, they change the film picture cover to reflect what they think will best attract you to watch that. So if I watch it versus my girlfriend, we see different pictures for the same movie because they know that will encourage me to watch it versus her. It almost feels like sort of eventually over the course of the last approaching 30 years now, Really, it's been a race for data, and data is now the main game in town. And Amazon have sort of in part a huge first mover advantage, but just are hoovering up these tremendous quantities. Have Amazon sort of like won in some in some meaningful sense? Like, what would what would it take for them 
notched it because as as you say their fingers are in so many pies with the sort of web services on the one hand that even if people weren't using the retail stuff so much they would still end up even involuntarily using a bunch of amazon products and services so is is this is this just how the world is now to some extent yes but what you often find is there can be a shift in the public narrative and if there is a some key event or some major thing that happened that caused enough people to suddenly change their mind about something, then you suddenly start to see that people may change their their shopping behaviours en masse as long as there is a viable alternative. And that's kind of where the situation we're up to at the moment is there isn't someone where you can say there's another website which is the equivalent Amazon that you can switch to. So I used to live in uh, Switzerland. And when I first moved there, I was shocked to find that Amazon doesn't exist in Switzerland. And it's suddenly like, if I want to buy something, where do I go? I ended up buying books from one website. I ended up buying like electronics from another. And it's a very different mindset. Within the UK, there isn't one website which if I want to buy literally clothing, groceries, music, anything coming from one place. Amazon's advantage in terms of the amount of data they have it's hard to imagine someone competing with them. But could you give us an idea of like the relative scales of these businesses? Like I think, for example, with Meta, right? And many, many people have deleted their Facebook accounts, particularly if you're a bit younger and you think that that's where sort of it's just for boomers to share conspiracy theories or whatever. And yet because of the amount of hosting and other things that Meta does, sort of linked to just the architecture of the internet, you can find like, even if I don't have a Facebook account, but I probably engage with Meta loads and thereby make the money, right? So where is the money? Like, is is the shopping stuff actually like the huge heart of the profit center for them? Or is it some of this other stuff? At the moment, it's the cloud or Amazon web services, I think, where the is the most profitable section of the business. So as I said, Amazon web service has roughly a 33% market share for all cloud computing. The next biggest competitors, I think, are Microsoft, which has 21%, and Google Cloud, which have 10%. So when you're looking at who their competitors are, Amazon have the biggest market share, which is kind of really impressive. The other thing to start looking at is how their business model is structured. So at the moment, we've got a real uh, competition in terms of, should we say, streaming services. So we have the likes of Netflix versus Amazon Prime versus Disney. But in some ways... Amazon aren't necessarily trying to make profit, or well, they want to make profit, but the whole point of Amazon Prime in terms of their streaming service is to lock people up into Prime. So they're not necessarily needing to make a huge profit on their streaming service. They're just using it as a mechanism to entice people to pay for Prime. Because if you pay for Prime, you're then more likely to be ordering more products through Amazon. So it's a really unique business model. And it makes it really hard for even a a global company the size of Disney to compete with them because Disney have to make money from their streaming service. Amazon are just, it's another technique to help lock people into the Amazon ecosystem. And that's a really different business model. And it just gives them such a big advantage. And certainly, like I know personally, like the the reason that I don't have Amazon Prime is that I feel that all of the friends I have who do have it get absolutely everything in their lives from that one source because they're they're so like well why wouldn't i now that i'm in that ecosystem yeah it's a model which is very simple but it works in some ways it's very similar to the apple one you get your apple phone it speaks so nicely to an ipad or speaks to your imac whatever it is they all integrate so well and you suddenly find yourself locked into their system partly through choice partly by design 
Amazon are kind of doing the same thing with the Prime. And because Amazon aren't necessarily trying to make a huge profit from their streaming service, it allows them to throw a huge amount of money at producing these great groundbreaking TV shows. So the Rings of Power or the Wheel of Time. Amazon don't need to worry about making sure they make a profit on each show, where for the likes of Disney, they have to make sure they're guaranteeing a profit because that's their only source of income, or at least their primary source of income for their streaming service. Just a couple of questions to close us off. Firstly, do we now just shop and consume more purely through the existence of Amazon? I'm not going to say it's purely due to Amazon, but it's the fact that everything is so much quicker. So if you're suddenly thinking about, oh, I'd like that, you can order it straight away. And thanks to the change in the delivery service, it'll be there tomorrow. We went back, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, people still window shop. They'd looked at catalogs. They'd look at things. They'd see adverts. They're like, oh, I quite like that. But you'd have, this, you'd have this cooling off period. You'd certainly have to go to the shops to be able to order it. With Amazon, that's not there anymore. Amazon have also streamlined the ordering process. So they've removed friction. And this is when it comes to designing websites, the most effective way of encouraging people to buy more. So we know the number of pages you have to go through on a website to check out, the more likely you are to drop out sort of like 3 to 4% of increased drop-out rate for every page you go through. Amazon, there's one-click ordering. They've got your card details. They've got your address. You can be looking at a new book, whatever it is, a new computer. Just click that buy now, and it will be delivered by tomorrow. And that really has started changing things, and it, um, it encourages impulse purchasing. I feel as though we began this discussion sort of talking about the impact that Amazon had on the high street as traditionally considered. And I suppose over the course of its still young existence, it has been at the forefront of the development of effectively the new high street, right? It's, it, there's now a digital high street and nine out of 10 shop fronts are those of Amazon, seemingly. Also, what I've, what I've taken from the conversation that I think is really interesting is that through these things like web services being the heart of what's really driving huge amounts of profit for this company. It's that not they're not just the shops on the high street. They are the landlord who owns all of the buildings, right? And are, are sort of able to rent out to other people who might... So even if you're not buying from Amazon, you might still... A bit of that is going to Amazon. Some, like if, if, if the shop that you are buying for is hosted there, because Amazon's their landlord, so to speak. Yeah, it is. They kind of control should we say, the back-end side of so much of the internet or in terms of the cloud computing or at least the servers where so much, so many websites for their rivals are hosted. The other thing is you may not buy through Amazon, but their algorithms start to influence what products are, should we say, hot or not. So it's a case of so many companies decide on what they're stocking based on how well they sell. And although you may not buy from Amazon, 70%, 80% of people are going to buy from Amazon. So they're going to look at their algorithm and depending on where those products are rated based on factors that you're not aware of, it will influence which reviews are, shall we say, higher up the list, which ones are lower down. And all of those things are going to influence your purchasing habits, even though you're never using it. So there we have it, truly the Amazonification of everything. Gareth, thank you very much for joining us on The Bunker. Not at all. Listeners, Thanks for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app. And if you are able to, then you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more by supporting us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how it is cheaper than Amazon Prime. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
Baker Daily was written and presented by Ahur Shah. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>